All righty. So uh, tonight is uh, we're done with fish. Uh, more fish than I could handle in those couple of weeks. We'll probably get back to it at uh, at some point. Uh, some fishy topics, but here we have a a different one. It's it, it's in a sense it's going to be two different parts, but it comes off of the uh, the same gemara, the same uh, discussion. So uh, that's how it goes, and I'm not sure. You know, we'll, we'll have to see how this uh, this goes. Uh, I assume you could see at the top over there, right? The name of it, learning halacha from Agarato. So this is something which is itself uh, a very interesting topic. So we'll see briefly about that, and then we'll uh, discuss also. There's some interesting stuff related to the specific halacha, which uh, um, which revolves around this uh, this uh, particular gemara. So it's something which came up uh, in morning seder, uh, where we're learning the halachas of of aksuva, and uh, in uh, one of the uh, the sfarim which we learn. So this topic was uh, was mentioned. So it would grab my attention right away. I got very excited by it, and uh, so here we uh, so here we are. Okay. So it begins with a gemara in uh, Gittin. So this gemara in Gittin may sound a little bit familiar. Uh, it's part of that those uh, those gemaras in Gittin which sometimes people study or make reference to on Tishabav. It's amongst those uh, sections of Gemara that you're allowed to study on, uh, on Tishabav. So the Gemara relates, this is source number one over here, the Gemara Git Nun Zayin of Aleph. So it recounts the following story. It says, Maisa Be'arus Be'arusaso. So you have a case, it sounds like they may have uh, may very well have been engaged already at this time. It's not clear that they got engaged before or after, but let's just say that they were engaged already. That they were kidnapped by idolaters. This is the time of the, uh, the second base of Mitesh. So it would be by the Romans. And the Romans thought that it would be appropriate to go ahead and marry off this couple. So remember that the, in the time of Chazal, you had the two stages of the wedding, of marriage. One was the Kedushin, and then you have the Nisuin. And the Kedushin could be up to a year or so before the Nisuin, before the actual marriage itself. So they were in that stage of being engaged. They were kidnapped. And then the idolaters who kidnapped them, the kidnappers, went ahead and had them marry. The, uh, whoever the, uh, the justice of the peace kidnapper, kind of a stira, that the justice of the peace kidnapper to put that together. But the justice of the peace kidnapper went ahead and uh, declare, uh, uh, pronounced them a husband and wife. Now, Amrlo, so the wife says to her new husband, she says, listen, do me a favor, now that we're married, please don't touch me, because I don't have a ksuva. Now, what she, she is referring to is, apparently she was, an, she was a great halachic scholar in her own right. So there's halacha, which says that if a, a couple does not, and we talked about this when we, when we did the topic of the ripped ksuva, but we said that if a couple finds themselves in a circumstance where they don't have a valid ksuva, so they're not allowed to be together, they're not allowed to have sexual relations with one another, they're not allowed, to, to may even be that it's us to be in yichud with one another, that's something which Shochan Arch discusses. So she says to her new husband, listen, do me a favor, please don't touch me, let's not be together in any physical way whatsoever, why? Because I don't know. Uh, in Aramaic, maybe I don't know. But he says, "I don't have a ksuva from you." So, being that there's no ksuva, so let's uh, let's let's uh, let's avoid any physical contact. And the Gemara says, amazingly, "Vlo nagaba ad yomoso." They were married their entire lives, however long that was, and he never made physical contact with his wife. Ukishames. Then after he dies, you don't know how old he was, but after he died, Amr lahen. So she said. To the, uh, to the rabbis who were involved, she said to the professional speakers, Siftu when you eulogize my, my dear husband, you, I want you to go ahead and mention the following point, emphasize the following point, and that is, that he was in greater control over his Yetzirah than oh. even Yosef Atzadik. Why? De'ilu Yosef, because Yosef in the temptation with Ashes Potiphar, with Potiphar's wife, so it was essentially, it was a one-time temptation. 
Everybody was out of the house. She came in. She said, sleep with me, be with me. Let's get married. Let's be together. And he resisted just barely. And so that's what Yosef did. So one time he was able to resist. And, but my husband, this woman said, Vahai kol yoma v'yoma. He was able to resist the temptation on a daily basis. And again, another thing, v'ilu Yosef la Yosef and, and Potiphar's wife, they didn't share a bed together. They never even got into bed together. Pashas. So, but they didn't, uh, they were, they did not share a bed. And v'hai v'chadamita. And my husband and I, since we were kidnapped, they were not giving us, uh, you know, luxurious uh, accommodations over there. So we shared the same bed and he still didn't touch me. And furthermore, lastly, v'ilu Yosef lav ishto. And Yosef, when he resisted, what he resisted was being together with somebody who wasn't even his wife. Vahishto and my husband refrained or re- restrained himself and the, the Yitzhahara, even though I was his wife. So in these three characteristics, these three ways, my husband was able to be in greater control over his Yitzhahara than even, than even Yosef HaTzadik. And she said, when you're maspid him, when you're going to give a hesped for my husband, make sure you emphasize these points. Okay? That's what the Gemara says. Now, the Marsha, uh, one of the, uh, the, the primary commentators, which you would find in the back of the, uh, of the Gemara. So the Marsha, on this Gemara, this is in, in the Marsha writes halachically, and then he writes also on the Agadita. So he says as follows. He says, I'm the Gemara's statement where she said, don't touch me because we don't have a ksuva. So the Marsha says, so this, the Gemara here implies a little bit, that when a couple becomes formally engaged, when they reach the stage of Arison, they don't yet have a ksuva. Because if they did have a ksuva, so then before they were ever kidnapped, they would already have a ksuva in place, and then they'd be allowed to be together physically. So since they were engaged and they didn't have a ksuva already in place, therefore, it sounds like, and the Marsha is saying that this Gemara seems to lend itself towards that side of the machlokas, that, uh, that, uh, that side of the debate, whether or not an engaged couple, not engaged, what we call engaged, but halakhically engaged, uh, a, uh, a betrothed couple would have a, would have a, uh, a, a ksuva or not, and this Gemara sounds like they would not. Okay, and that's the Marsha's halachic comment about this Agadita story in the Gemara. Okay? Now, this right away leads to the question, wait a minute over here. When the Gemara is telling stories, when we get to Agadita sections, can you actually be um, medayik um, in them? Can you actually infer from them halachic points or the point of the story is the story, and the point of the story is not the halachic element of it. So on this, and it's not a direct reference to this, but here we have a very important idea. So here, in order to see the uh, one of the first ones to talk about this, Tosos Yantif, so we have to begin with a Mishnah Brachos. Completely different topic. So put aside now the engaged couple in the Ksuva and Evan Ezer, put Evan Ezer aside, now we're going to shift over to Arachayim from it. So the Mishnah says, Mishnah Brachos, Perakei Mishnah Daud. However, Lifnei So this is, now we're going to take ourselves to Eretz Yisrael, because that doesn't apply so much by us over here, but take ourselves to Eretz Yisrael. So the person who's going to be davening for the, where, where they duchen by Shachris and Musaf on a daily basis. So if you find yourself in uh, davening for the Amud in Eretz Yisrael, Lo Yana Achar Kohanim Amen. So when the Kohanim duchen, and they say, Yivrecha Hashem V'yishmerecha, and the whole Tzibur says, Amen, you as a Sheikh Tzibur, you should not answer Amen. Why? Because back then, before they had printed Sidurim, so you were davening by heart, if you go ahead and you get yourself on a roll, and then all of a sudden you have to pause, and you have to answer Amen in the middle of your Chazar Sashat, that could throw you off. And once you get thrown off, you may have a, have a hard time starting again. There are certain things that you know that you, you, it, you could say from beginning to end if nobody interrupts you. But if you get interrupted in the middle, then you got to start back at the beginning again and you have to start again. So because of that fear that answering Amen to Birkas Kohanim will throw off your Chazar Sashats, so the Mishnah says, you as a Sheat Sibor, you don't answer Amen to Birkas Kohanim, you just remain quiet and you listen to everybody else's Amen so you don't, uh, don't get confused. Then the Mishnah says, Vim Ein Sham Kohen Elohu, 
Now, let's say the only Kohen who's there to Dochen is you, who happens to be the Shleach Tzibor. It's not what I'm going to do. On the one hand, as a Shleach Tzibor, we don't want you to interrupt because we're afraid that any interruption in Chazar Sashat will leave you confused and you won't be able to finish. But on the other hand, don't know why it does this. But on the other hand, uh, if you're the only Kohen there, without you, they're not going to be able to do Birkas Kohenim. So then it says, Lo Yisas Kapov. So even though by you, the Kohen serving as the, uh, as the, uh, as the Sheikh that's going to mean that there's no Birkas Kohenim in, in davening that day, so be it. That's going to be the Halach. But but in the event that you're an experienced pro at this, you're an experienced pro at being a Kohen, and you're an experienced pro at davening for the Yamud, so you are perfectly capable of going from Chazar Sashatz into Birkas Kohanim and back to Chazar Sashatz again, and you don't have any issue with that whatsoever, Rashai, so then it's going to be allowed. Okay, and that's what, for the most part nowadays, even though we try and avoid Kohanim uh, serving as the as the Sheikh Sibor when there is Dochening, but you can imagine if you Dochen every day and you're a Kohen and you have your site or something or you're an Avelus, so what choice do you have? So they, if, when you hang out in Eretz Yisrael enough, so you get used to all of those halachas of how they manage a Kohen who's a Sheikh Sibor who's going to Dochen, somebody else does the Birkas Kohanim, it's, uh, it's Gewalt. But since we have Sidurim nowadays, so the, the issue of getting confused and getting lost and not being able to resume is really, uh, is really uh, nominal. Okay, that's what the Mishnah says. Now, the Tosos Yantif on this Mishnah, one of the primary commentators on the, uh, the Mishnahis, probably second uh, of the most prominent uh, commentators. So he says as follows. He says, Kasu b'hagos maimini. He says, one of the, uh, the Rishonim writes, v'hatam we make an exception when there's a Kohen there who's acting as a Shiach Tzibur and he's confident he's not going to get confused. We let him dochen because there's an overriding factor, which is there's a mitzvah saseh from the Torah to dochen. So we don't want to go ahead. We don't, we don't want to be so quick to forego that mitzvah. But in the event that the Kohen who's a Shiach Tzibur is not the only Kohen in the room, so Kohen Acha says Kapov, who will go ahead and be able to Dochen. So Dochening will take place even if the Kohen who's a Shiach Tzibur doesn't Dochen, then Lo Yisa Shiach Tzibur es Yadav. So then we don't want the Shiach Tzibur to go ahead and Dochen, even if he's perfectly confident, he's supremely confident that he'll be able to resume Chazar Sashat after Berkas Kohanim. If there's somebody else to do the dochening, we don't want this Kohen, who's a Sheikh Tzibor, to interrupt. That is what Hagos Maimini says. So the allowance, even with supreme confidence that you'll be able to resume, is only when you're the only Kohen, not if there's another one. Um, he says, the Kachkas of Haram, and that's what the Ramam also seems to say, al came therefore, Adkan, sorry, that's, what the, that's the end of Hagos Maimini. The Hilkach, therefore, says the Tosos Yantif, Therefore, a regular person, a non-Kohen, who's not going to be dochening anyways, so a regular Yisrael who's a Shleach Tzibor, if he wants to go ahead and um, answer Amen to Birkas Kohanim in the middle of his Chazar Sashatz, he's not allowed to do so, even if he's confident. Why? The Samatanam. Because the Mishnah, the first halach of the Mishnah, states categorically the shliach tzibur does not answer amen to birkas kohanim. And we don't make, the exceptions are only for the kohen, who's the only kohen in the room, to duchen, for him to go ahead and do so. But when it comes to a non-kohen, there are no qualifications to that. Categorically, a non-kohen may not answer amen to birkas kohanim, even if he is absolutely confident he'll be able to resume. resume. Why? Because the only leniency we have is for when one is confident is if you are the only coin in the room because we don't want to forego Birkas Kohanim. But if Birkas Kohanim, if there's no issue of foregoing Birkas Kohanim, so we say, you know what, don't answer. I mean, we're not taking any chances. So that, that, that's the opposite of the halacha today, right? I mean, today the Shliach Tzibur does answer Amen. Correct. Yes, right. Okay. 
Now, but this is what he's 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 inferring from the Hagos Maimon. Okay, now uh, then he says in brackets over this is like a later uh, addition to his commentary. He says, Vine Besifri Besefer Lechem Chamurus Bepirkin Sifnun Beis Kasafi. Then he goes and he writes, the, the Tosos Yantif also wrote, for those who ever studied the rush on certain Mesechtas, so you have, uh, Brachos is one of them, you have under the rush, you have a commentary to the rush called the Lechem Chamudos. The Lechem Chamudos is the same author as the Tosos Yantif. So he says that I wrote, He says that they showed me a Medrash, Medrash Rabba in Parshas Kisavo, which says, There the Medrash says explicitly that any Chazan who's confident that he could re- resume Chazar Sashas without getting confused is allowed to answer Amen. So the Medrash says the opposite of what we just inferred from the Hagos Maimini. From the Hagos Maimini, it seems to be that a regular Chazan, a Yisrael Chazan, is not able to answer Amen under any circumstance, regardless of his confidence to be able to resume. And the Medrash says that you can. And therefore he says, He says, I went ahead and I gave another shot to the Mishnah. That I'm going to read the Mishnah in uh, in in the almost opposite manner. And that is that if the Mishnah says that a Kohen, who's a Sheikh Tzibur, who's confident that he'll be able to return uh, to, uh, to Chazar Sashat after Duchening, where Duchening is a long pause for him, he's not just answering Amen and then going back to what he said, but he's going to have to say, Yevarechacha, Hashem, Vishvarecha. He's going to have to say all of that. So if we allow, if somebody has confidence to do all of Birkas Kohanim, so Koshagin Aniyas Amen. So then certainly if the Shleach Tzibur only interrupts Chazar Sashat for a simple Amen, that certainly should be okay. And that's going to lead to the, and that's an inference in the exact opposite direction, as Art said, which is a little bit more in line with the way we practice nowadays. So he says, initially, I thought that it would be Aser. Then based on this Madrash, I thought that it's Mutter. But then he says, he says, I now thought about it some further, upon further consideration, I realized that we don't learn halachas from medrash rabos, is the plural of medrash rabba. <laughs> so you have medrash rabos, we don't learn halachas from midrashim. That's not their function, that's not their purpose to go ahead and teach us halachas, and therefore that cannot be a source which is going to be instructive. And he says, in fact, the Yushamperg based the peya halacha dalad. The Yushami says this explicitly, Reb Zeira b'Shem Shmuel. Reb Zeira Neiv Shmuel says, "Ain lemedim lomin halachos." We don't learn from halachos. What exactly that means is not our discussion now. V'lomin hagadas. We don't learn from agadata. V'lomin hatoseftos. Nor do we learn things from toseftos. Elimin hagemara. The only source that we have, as far as being able to derive halacha from divrei chazal are only sources in the Gemara, the other type of Tanitic and Amoraic sources, they are not there to go ahead and instruct us as far as halacha is concerned, and therefore we don't derive halacha from those sources. And therefore, the, the Tosos Yantiv seems to step back from his opinion, and really he's going to go back with his initial thinking, and that is that a non-Kohen would not be able to dochen at all. We're not, sorry, we're not be able to answer Amen to Duchening at all, even if he's absolutely confident that he'll be able to resume, he would not go ahead and do so. Okay, now this topic of whether or not you could learn from Agatha. So now, as I said, this is a whole topic in of itself. And one of them that we have over here, one of the primary commentators about this is the Nota Behuda. Now, the Nota Behuda, it'd be worthwhile if we had time, maybe one day, but he, he in, there's a very famous note in Yehuda as far as Agadita is concerned, because in the introduction to this, uh, to this tshuva, the beginning of this tshuva, probably better said, he goes in and says, I don't know too much about Agadita. <laughs> Agadita is very, very difficult. Chazal speak in code. It's very difficult to, uh, to decipher. And you have to be able to, you know, figure out exactly what they mean. And he finds Agadita to be a more difficult limud than halacha. Halacha, the Nodabiyu, didn't have any problem poskating. That he felt very comfortable with Shas and Rishonim and the tour and Shochanach and all of that. That didn't trouble him at all. Uh, Agadita made him nervous. So in his opening r- remarks, he talks about how he doesn't really know Agadita too well. 
But then he says, uh, part of that uh, undoubtedly was, uh, was great humility on his part. But then he says, Umasha Ratza. He's writing to Rabbi Yeshaya Pick. Rabbi Yeshaya Pick, for those who are familiar uh, in the, on the regular page of the Gemara, so you have the Mesorah Sashas, you have places on the side in the margin where they cross-reference other places in Shas where things appear. And then you could also have different commentaries around the side. Very often, that is Rabbi Yeshaya Pick. He is the one who is the Mesorah Sashas, makes those references. Okay. So he, uh, so the note of Yehuda is writing to him. He says, So you wanted to suggest that maybe we could qualify this idea. And that is that when do we not learn from a medrash? We wouldn't learn from a medrash in the event that a medrash is at odds with something in Shas. So if, if you have a, a dissenting opinion between a medrash and Shas Bavli, in the rock, paper, scissors of halacha, Shas Bavli always wins. Shas Bavli, sorry for the reference, will always trump a medrash. And that's something which would, uh, that, that we would say, maybe that's what's going on. Because of Shavishalmi Isa, But the Ushalmi, which we just saw the Tosos Yantif mentioned, he says we don't learn from any of these sources. So Lomar, and based on this, you, Rabbi Shaya Pick, you wanted to suggest. So when it comes to the Tosefta, now let me just give you uh, a quick background of the Tosefta. Rabbi Yudan Nasi went ahead and uh, one of his uh, uh, tasks in life was to go ahead and collect all of the uh, written notes in literature available up until his day from the time of the Tanaim to sift through all of that, edit through all of that, and compile what would be the authoritative Mishnayas. So he went ahead and he took all of the stuff which is available, made the Mishnayas, organized it, Zerai, Moed, Nashim, Nezikin, Kanshim, Taros, the different Mishnayas, that was all Rabbi Yudah HaNasi's or organizational skills in organizing all of that, uh, that material. Now, obviously, in the course of doing so, so on the editing floor, you end up with a lot of sources which didn't make it into the Mishnayis for one reason or another. So the broad reference that we have to what didn't make into the Mishnah is brisas. The word bara means outside. So that's the stuff which was cut out, which was cut out. Now amongst that, you have what's called the Tosefta. The Tosefta, which means to add on, in a certain way, the Tosefta was the first commentary to the Mishnayis. So it follows it's, it's a full collection, and it follows the sequence and the order of the Mishnayis, but many times it gives a little bit more information that you find in a, uh, in a Mishnah. So a Tosefta in the hierarchy, Mishnayis is the, is the most authoritative, a Tosefta is the next rung under that, and then Brises are the rung below that. So he says, So when it comes to deriving halachas from Tosefta's, if you look in the poskim, they say, in contrast somewhat to the Yushami, that, that if you find a halacha stated in a tosefta, and it's not contradicted by some passage in Shas, sorry. so we could go ahead and we could learn from that. That can be used as a source, as a primary source for halacha. So when, it's, when a tosefta is in conflict with Shas, Shas is going to win. But if there's no conflict between the two, so we have no problem taking a Tosefta as an authoritative source for halachic matters. Therefore, suggests Rabbi Shayapik, maybe the same thing is true regarding Agadata. If we don't find a passage in Shas which contradicts what the Medrash says halachically, so Maybe the Medrash can serve as a primary source for halachic matters. Because maybe all of the different sources mentioned in the Yushami are all equal. So if the Yushami says we don't learn halachas from these things, what it means is we wouldn't use that to override a place in Shas. So the same thing is true of a Medrash. A Medrash is not going to override anything which is said in the 2711 doctrine of Shas. But if there's no direct contradiction to that, so we have no problem taking a medrash and using that as an authoritative source to be able to derive halach. That, was, that is what Rabbi Shaya Pick suggested. And 
comes along the note of Yehuda, Cheska Landau, and he says, in the midst of his discussion, he says, He says, I'm of the opinion. Even though the Yushami grouped together all of these different sources in one statement, for our purposes, the Tosefta, as well as the uh, as well as Midrashim, but they're not all cut from the same cloth. He says you can't compare them at all. Midrashim and Tosefta's are fundamentally different from one another, and therefore, even as far as what you are suggesting, Rabbi Shayapik, it's not true. Why? Because because the Tosefta's primary purpose is to teach us halachas, is to teach us to elaborate on the halachas found in the Mishnahs. It's a halachic sefer. If you're going to look where it is on the shelf, it's in the halacha section. That was the intent of in Reboshaya, the authors, or probably better said, the editors of the Tosefta. And they went ahead and they put it together. And their purpose was to elaborate on the halachas of the Torah. Therefore, if there's something stated in the Tosefta, which is not at odds, which is with a statement in Shas, so we'll rely on the Tosefta because it is, it was intended to be a halachic work. But when it comes to a medrash or an agadata in Shas, their primary purpose is the Musr, the Musr message, or the hints to various, uh, let's say, deep ideas, or the mushal, which it means to convey, the story that it means to convey, the point that it means to convey with the with the with the mushal. In Midrashim and Agadata teach us about religion. There's religion and there's halacha. And those are two different topics. So you shouldn't get confused between the two. And the purpose of Agadata is to teach us about religion, religious life, that's their religion, religious ideas, but not halacha. But the purpose of a madrash is not to teach us halachas. And therefore, we do not turn to Midrashim to teach us halachas at all, even in a circumstance where that madrash is not in contradiction with something in Shas. It's just not a source for, for teaching Allah. That's not what it is. And therefore, he goes ahead and he, um, he says, He says, the Tos of Yantif, which we read, is very good. And then he goes ahead and he says, this is a fascinating thing. He says, now, He says, Rabbi Yeshaya Pick went ahead and proved they could derive halachas from a medrash as long as it's not contradicted from Shas, from Tosus and Avodazar. I'll give you a moment to recall what Tosus and Avodazar says in Daf Lama Gimel. Is that enough time? I also don't know. So he says, Shehevi. <laughs> so he goes in and he, he cites, Raya Medrash. There's a halachic discussion about how you go ahead and you kasher, in a sense, a utensil which was used for non-kosher wine. Right? We talk a lot about kashering utensils. So non-kosher wine, yayin nesaf. So what's the procedure? So the Toso says, So he brings a proof from a medrash that rinsing out the cup three times, an earthenware cup three times that contained non-kosher wine, so that already is sufficient. And therefore, we could use that as a proof that you could learn from midrashim. As we're going to see, that was from a story in the Megillus Esther story. So from that agadata, Tosos went ahead and proved his halachic point. Says the note of Yehuda, I'm shocked at this. I can't believe you did this. Why? He says, according to your approach, that we're going to go ahead and use an agada to teach halacha, it, just, just look at yourself in the mirror. Look at what you're trying to do. He says, it's not even the medrash who's telling us this idea that rinsing a cup three times makes the cup kosher. Because if you look in the Medrash that he's referring to, Halo Zehu Divrei Haman. Haman is the one who's saying bad things about the Jews. And Haman says, the Jews, go ahead. After you, Achashverosh, take a drink of wine from your cup, the Jews won't even touch it till they rinse it out three times. So Nodabuta says, really? You're going to say, you're going to point to this Medrash and say, this teaches us halacha? 
it's not even Chazal speaking in the Medrash, it's Haman speaking in the Medrash. You're going to see Haman is an authoritative source for halachic matters, since when would we derive any halachic, any halachic source whatsoever from, uh, from Haman? That's absolutely absurd. A Medrash Mesaper, Masha Amar Haman. The Medrash is recounting, the Medrash that Tos was referring to, is recounting what Haman said. Tama. I am absolutely shocked. Since when did Haman become an authority in Halacha that we're going to go ahead and turn to his, his words and we're going to pass in Halacha because of what Haman said? That's crazy. What is going on, said the Nodabihuda? All Haman was doing, Haman wasn't passing Halacha. He was just recounting his observation about the Jews to Achashverosh. So Anu Hagam Yisrael So all we're using Haman isn't passing halacha. He's just like a historian. He's reporting what he saw. This is what he saw, and the halacha, the, the halachic derivation is not from the medrash. All the medrash is doing is recounting what the minog of the people was at that time. So it's not as if the medrash is instructing us what a halacha is. It's telling a story, and along the way in this story, so we're able to see clearly what their practice used to be at that time. But it's not as if that medrash is actually teaching us the halacha per se. It's not a limud from the medrash. It's just that's the, uh, the, the story where we get to see what that, what that is. Okay, so this is something which is, continues to be a debate amongst, the, amongst commentators, amongst poskim. How much credibility are we going to give to uh, halachas which are found in Midrashim, are they considered to be authoritative? They're not considered to be authoritative. Can we point to them to, uh, to, uh, to derive halacha or not? So that is something which is, a, it's a fascinating, fascinating discussion. Okay, now let's swing back around to our Shiloh over here. So remember the whole discussion, the, the springboard for our discussion tonight was you have this engaged couple. They were taken, they were kidnapped by some Romans. The kidnappers decide that they should get married. And the wife says to her husband after Nisuin, listen, since we don't have a ksuva, please don't touch me because Chazal said that if a woman doesn't have a ksuva, the husband and wife are not allowed to be physically intimate whatsoever. That's what the Gemara said. Ask the Marsha, this is the same Marsha. He says, sorry, I, I, I should, uh, the, the question is, it's, a, it's an implied question. He says, he, the Marsha asked the question, he says, wait a minute. Why didn't she say to her husband, hey, dear, write me a ksuva? <laughs> the whole chumr was, listen, we don't have a ksuva, and therefore we're not going to be able to be together. Hey, I've got a great idea. Go ahead and write a ksuva. <laughs> why, why didn't he, they just go ahead and write a ksuva, and then they could be together? It solves the whole, uh, it solves the whole issue. So he says, that's Shalomar, the hachikamar. So the marsha says, you know why they didn't have the option to write a ksuva? The kevan de shvuya the hava. Because the chassan over here, he was kidnapped. He was kidnapped as an Eved. He was now a slave to his Roman captor. And therefore his captor legally owned this Jew. And we know the halacha is, there's a halacha in Shas, which says that once you have a slave, anything which the slave acquires belongs to the master, meaning the slave does not have any ownership of property. And therefore, you have to have some sort of possession in order to be able to back up the ksuva. You're making a financial commitment over here. If you don't have, by definition, any possessions whatsoever, because you're a slave to somebody else and slaves don't own property, so how is he going to be able to go ahead and follow through on the ksuva? So signing the ksuva would just be a big joke. It can't, it can't take place anyways. And therefore, that's why it wasn't an option to go ahead and write exuba. Yes, Ellen. So the implication is that they remained slaves. Uh, they remained in captivity for their whole lives. They were slaves. Yeah, they were taken as slaves. They, ne they never got out of captivity. So like right. they never got, got, came home and then could just have a kasuba then. Right. So right. He, he died. Right. Right. The, the, she wanted the husband to say that the, the rest of his life, we were married, but we were never together. Yeah. Okay, are, so that, that's times, what the, that's yeah. What was that, Mel? There are times when there's not enough money in the ketubah to pay the to, to pay the wife. So what, what's the problem that he doesn't have money? Right. So it, all, all we need is that at the time that they sign the ksuva, so he has there's the potential that he'll be able to have the money. 
But here, as a slave, there's never potential to have the money. He doesn't have it now, and he never will have money because he's going to be a slave the rest of his natural life, and therefore he'll never have possessions. I thought you were going to say that because the slave owner owns everything that the guy owns, he was going to own the wife too. No, he doesn't go in that direction. It could be. Now, so that's what the Marshal says. Comes along, here is a sefer called Beis HaOtzer. Beis HaOtzer is written by Rav Yosef Engel. He was one of those geniuses of geniuses where he just sees all 2,100 pages of Shas all simultaneously. It's just one big cholent and he's able to, you know, manipulate and move around and just deal with all of Shas and Rishonim in one, uh, in one glance. Can, can I ask a question? In, in, in Halacha, is a Jew allowed to have a non-Jewish master? I mean, you know, the, 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 the dinim of a slave and a master are between two Jews. Oh, so hold on. So uh, the, the Rav Yosef Engel is going to ask uh, a similar question to that, uh, but along those same lines, the same, the same line of thinking. So one, one moment. So he says, right, the, this I can't underline because it's a, it's a picture from the Sefer. But if you see where the doohickey is over there, it says at the end of the first line, he says, Vu he quotes the Marsha and he says, this is absolutely astonishing. I can't believe he said this. Because when a Jew is bought by a non-Jew as a slave, as far as a non-Jewish slave owner is concerned, he doesn't own the body of the slave, he owns his work. When a Jew owns a non-Jewish slave, the Jewish owner not only owns the work of his slave, he owns the body of the slave himself. That's why he's able to marry him off. There's all sorts of halachas which are related to that. But that's unique too, as Arthur said, that's unique when a Jew owns a non-Jewish slave. When a non-Jew owns a Jewish slave, all he owns is his work. But he doesn't own his body at all. Like the Gemara, like those Gemara say, okay, we don't have to see all that. Uh, uh, okay, so we're now jumping down to the second to the last line. He says where the, the mouse is. Vim Kane. So halachically, this Jew, this chasen over here, it has the same halachic status as an Evid Ivri owned by a Jew. Where all that he, all that is owned by his non-Jewish slave owner is his work. Therefore, and therefore halachically, the chasen can acquire possessions, can be a property owner, and therefore he should be able to back up the ksuva. There's no halachic impediment to being able to back up the ksuva because it is possible for him to own something. So if Yosef Engel says, I can't believe the Marsha said that it's not that the reason why they didn't write ksuva is because it's not possible because he doesn't own anything. Of course he owns something. Because when a non-Jew owns a Jewish slave, the halacha is, is that he only own, owns your work. He doesn't own your body. And therefore the slave has the ability to acquire possessions. And therefore, he leaves it, you know, he gives his own, uh, you know, somewhat the uh, answer. But he, he, he expresses unbelievable astonishment at the Marsha for seemingly overlooking this very elementary uh, uh, factor. Now he says, now comes along the Makor Baruch. Um, I think the name is Ginsberg, but I don't, uh, or Ginsberg, I don't remember. But he says, he, uh, we're starting from the top line. He says, I have a solution. I, I can explain what's going on. The Rambam writes, And we talked about this, I think, in the Lion King. He says that when a king or a non-Jew goes out and wages battle, and they, they get a bunch of captives, or if the king, the non-Jewish king's law is, Anybody who doesn't pay taxes is going to be sold as a slave. So if you have a Jew who's taken as a slave in any one of these circumstances, either captive of war or tax evasion, let's say. Don't give the government any ideas, please. So so that Jew is now going to be considered an Ebed Kanani for all matters. Meaning... Normally, we say that a non-Jew cannot buy a Jew as a slave and own his body. The Rambam is saying, however, that there are certain exceptions to that rule. 
captivity and war can make you a full-fledged slave, where your slave owner owns your body, or in the event that the government is the rule that tax evaders are going to be sold rather than selling the property for, uh, for not paying their taxes. So the person himself is going to be sold. So that also, that, the Rambam says, is a recognized Kenyan in halacha. And Kesav Mishnah goes ahead and elaborates on that. He says that, um, just stepped out for time's sake, so over here it says, So based on this, we could say, that when the Romans conquered the Jews at the time of the destruction of the second base of Mitosh, so that is a halachically recognized conquest. And therefore, when the Romans took Jews into captivity, so they actually halachically acquired them as full-fledged slaves. And therefore, although Rav Yosef Engel is correct generally, that a non-Jew cannot own a Jew as a slave in Gansan, not only his work, but his body. But when Dina de Machusa Dina recognizes the right of the non-Jewish slave owner to own even the body of the Jewish slave, Halacha will recognize that. And therefore, the Marsha actually is correct that this Hassan was not capable of acquiring any possessions whatsoever because he was halachically owned in totality by his non-Jewish captor, and therefore that's why the Ksufa was not going to work. And therefore, he says over here, Bekan Havale Dina Demachus, Hava Dina Demachusa. So here is a case where the law recognized the slave ownership. Ulahacha Kanale Kinyan Gufo. And therefore the non-Jewish slave owner owned the Jew entirely. He had full title over him. The Shapa Hayale Bay Kinyan Isser. And therefore, he had the right to go ahead and restrict him on any on property ownership or anything of that sort. And therefore, once again, the rule says, And therefore, the slave cannot acquire property whatsoever. Therefore, he can never make good on the ksuva. And once he can never make good on the ksuva, so that's why the ksuva can't be written. Okay? One last source over here. I spent uh, more than a good hour looking for this source, uh, and I couldn't find it uh, anywhere. All my efforts were, uh, were not, uh, did not prove uh, fruitful. So I'm quoting from a secondary source. So this is from a sefer called Imre Yaakov on Ebenezer, sort of like a Mishnah Bura type of uh, commentary on that. Uh, you may, we, when we talked about the, the Torn Ksuva, so this was one of the sources which I used. So he quotes Hagos Marsham, Al Shas. So he quotes the Marsham, is uh, the Marsham was one of the great post in his in his generation. Um, what's said about the Marsham, I think I may have mentioned it once or twice in Shul, is that after he got right after he got married, uh, so he wasn't going to go into the rabbinate at all. He owned a makolet of sorts, and he decided that while he was sitting in the makolet between customers, so he's going to review Shochanarch uh, and Ramah. Just those two comments, Shulchanarch and Ramani, that's what he's going to do between customers to keep himself busy and keep his head in learning. And somehow, like over the course of a year or something like that, he went over all of Shulchanarch, Mechaber Ramah, like 150 times, you know, some, some ungodly number like that. So when the Marsham, when the Marsham talks in Halacha, so you could, be, you could be certain that he's pretty fluent as far as what's going on. He was a, he was a very uh, um, uh, a wise uh, uh, person. So he says, so he's addressing this back. I had to type it in. So he writes as follows. He says, you know, he's answering the Marshal's question. Why is it that this chassan could not go ahead and sign the ksuva? Because remember, the ksuva isn't just the obligation that in the event that they get divorced, they'll pay her the 200 zoos. And in the event that she brings in an adunya, she brings in some sort of dowry that he's guaranteeing of, of that. That's the Mezukuk and Kesef that you hear them talk about. Mezukuk and Kesef this, which obviously I mean delay. Od Mezukuk and Kesef, you know, Masai Mezukuk and Kesef, all of that money. Besides that, there's a line earlier in the Ksuva, which as a slave, he's not going to be able to fulfill. And that is, he's not going to be able to fulfill Eflach is the Aramaic word for financially support. So one of the fundamental obligations of the ksuva that the husband accepts upon himself is to financially support his wife while they're married. Forget about what happens if they get divorced and in the event that she becomes widowed, how much she's going to get. While they're married, he's making a commitment that he's going to financially support her. As a slave, he cannot do so honestly. So since he cannot fulfill that line, which says 
that I'm going to Eflach, the Azon, the Oker, and all that other stuff, since that's outside of his ability. So the Marsham says that's the reason why they couldn't sign the Ksuva. Because since they had to use the standard Nusuf, and it was not possible to go ahead and make that, uh, that, that commitment, the Sherk Sus and Ona, the, uh, the financial obligations while they're married. So it's for that reason the Marsham says that he was, uh, they were unable to sign the Ksuva, and that's why they had no choice, or she felt that there was no choice, but for them to remain uh, celibate, even though they were uh, even though they were married. Okay, so these are <laughs> these are the uh, the two points: whether or not you could go ahead and you could uh, derive any sort of halachic conclusions from either a medrash or an agadata in shas, and then you have this interesting question about why this particular couple in the Gemara and Gittin over there. Why is it that it wasn't possible for them to? Why didn't they? go ahead and write the ksuba, and that would have uh, solved all of their, uh, their problems. All righty. Uh, be fruitful and multiply is yes. uh, halacha in, in the Torah. Uh, yes. Is, is the ketubah in the Torah? No. So what takes precedence? Um, excellent question. Uh, so Chazal, uh, um, it's, it's a long discussion. <laughs> um, you know, longer than, uh, than we have. But the, the simple thing is, is that uh, Chazal were very sensitive to the dynamics of relationship between husband and wife. And they didn't want to create a circumstance where those dynamics would not be in their ideal uh, setting. And therefore, remember, this important rule, uh, Mel, to remember that Chazal have the ability to be okay or something from the Torah, to uproot something from the Torah, b'shev al by telling a person to be passive. They can't tell you to eat a double bacon cheeseburger. I've looked, I haven't found it yet. So <laughs> to tell you to do an Avera, so that they're not able to do, but they could tell you not to do a mitzvah. Like they tell us, don't blow shofar on Shabbos. I, the Torah says blow shofar on Shabbos. Chazal could come along and say, yeah, we know that the Torah says blow shofar on Shabbos, but we have our, uh, we have our considerations why we don't want you to do so. And therefore we're going to suspend that Daraisa. Same thing with Lulav and Esog. Torah says, take a Lulav and Esog. And Chazal come along and say, well, we, we don't think so. We don't think you should really take that because it's too risky to violate the Shabbos. So this would be another example where Chazal come along and say, yes, there's a mitzvah of Puravu, but we don't want to go ahead and if we were to allow this to go forward without a ksuba, so that would be bad news for the Jews all around. And therefore, they're going to withhold the mitzvah of Puravu until... Um, uh, until a ksuva can be uh, can be put in place. I have a question. Yes. If um, if a, a Jew sells himself into slavery because he can't afford to live, or or he's taken into slavery because he stole something uh, as a Jewish slave, how come he has a ketuba? He's married and he has a ketuba, and he now is doing an Avera because he's not following what's written in the Ketubah, which is to support his wife because he's not, he can't support her if, um, if he's a slave. Right. So yes. isn't, doesn't that sort of nullify the Ketubah? Um, so number one is eventually he's going to get out. Right. Well, it, but really, the slave... it, should, it should really only be for six years. That Avera should really only be for six years. In the event that he says, you know what? I really like it here. And all of that stuff, and I want to stay for longer. So that itself is a bad thing to go ahead and, and to do so. But uh, but it is for a limited period of, of time that he's going to be he's going to be uh, doing so. And uh, and uh, yeah, but uh, the, the bottom line is is that you should have thought about this ahead of time. <laughs> you shouldn't have stolen and then cry and say like uh, you know the uh, the person who kills his parents and then throws himself on the mercy of the court, claiming he's an orphan. So you should have thought about that ahead of time. And now to come along and say, oh my gosh, I have, I have my super responsibilities. I have to take care of that. Shred. What, what about the wife? I mean, she, she doesn't have the ability to, uh, to compel a divorce uh, on her own. He has to give it to her. Right. So you make an aguna out of her, uh, but it seems from, from what, you, what you said. And that doesn't seem right either. So I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the slavery isn't what we're thinking from like roots. Um, the slavery, I think, I, I'm pretty sure, we'll get to it in, in Kedushan, but I'm pretty sure that the that if he was sold into slavery, I think she, his wife went together with him. 
I don't think that he was like out of the house or he was away from his wife for those for those six years. What? I think if he was already married, I think he remains married. Uh, She's I not thought, a slave. I thought Rashi says that um, there's something that I forgot the line in the Torah, but that that shows that he has to to support the wife and the children while he's a slave, but they don't live with him. But it, it could be that they don't live in the house with him. Right. They don't. I, 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 I don't know that the slave has to like sever his relationship with his wife and kids. I don't think he does. I may be wrong, but you but you it, it, it the the owners of the slave owner's obligation to support them that may be a you know a separate thing. Giving financial support and giving them housing are two different things. They may be two different things. Well, they must uh, they must serve together. I'm thinking because the the psukim you just quoted a minute ago, in bal ishahu veyotso ishto imo, at the end of six years. So, right. they, so if if you go back though, is that talking about a wife that the master gave to the slave? No, that's talking, that's talking about his original wife. That's his original wife, because you also have, um, excuse me, my memory is failing again. But if it was a wife, uh, beginning of Mishpatim, yeah, if it was a wife. That the master gave him, then she stays when he goes out. Right. So he would lose them if he were to go out. That's the one that the master gave him. Right at uh, yeah, yeah, I right at the beginning of Mishpatim. That is, and master's not even allowed to give him a wife if he has one already. Yeah, I'll read, I'll, oh, sorry, I lost you. I'll read you what the, what the art scroll says over here. He says, but this Vayatza Ishta Imo, it's quoting Rashi and the rabbi, says, the verse refers to the Jewish wife to whom the bondsman was married before he began his servitude. <clears throat> so this is the case that you were talking about, Shalim. It is not to imply that she was enslaved or in any way obligated to her husband's master. Rather, since the bondsman family would be without a breadwinner during his six years, the Torah shows them mercy by requiring the master to support them. It is this condition of dependency upon the master that she and her children leave at the end of her husband's servitude. So, as we said, uh, that the uh, Chazal uh, say that uh, we think of being a slave owner is like some privileged type of thing where you get to abuse, you get to take advantage of other people. You go ahead and you buy this Jewish slave. You're not only taking him into your home, you now have to financially support his family. So you're paying, you're paying now this day school tuition <laughs> and you're paying for Pesach for them <laughs> when they go away and you're paying for all of the, you know, their school supplies and all of that. So before you think that it's going to be some cushy job to go ahead and get yourself some slaves, you better, uh, you know, speak that over with your financial planner and your accountant to make sure you could afford it because this is going to cost you a lot of money. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thanks, thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Have a good uh, Lag Bomer, have a good Shabbos.